0: are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is unfortunately not here. He had to deal with some family business this weekend. But Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. We cover some various movie topics, jump into a mostly spoiler-free review, then jump back to other fun movie topics. This is episode 383, 383, a numerical palindrome, and Abe is not here to to relish in that fact, but here we are anyway. This week we're talking Parasite, the new feature from director Bong Joon-ho. The highly acclaimed new feature from director Bong Joon Ho, yeah, yeah, and uh, I just to say up front, as we get to our main review for the film, we'll talk about it as we normally do, but I think we are going to delve into some spoiler territory as well. So, you have, if you have not seen Parasite, or if you and you plan to, or you just don't care about spoil, just heck, no, we'll give a heads up beforehand. But just be aware, we're going to get into some spoiler stuff because the movie has a lot of surprises and things that make for a better conversation, I think, if we're actually able to get into them. With all that said, joining me to discuss Parasite this evening, we have, from Galsday Fullerton, just saved off his peach fuzz, it's Professor Mike Dillon. Hey, how are you? Also joining us from Lenoir Artur, working with very spotty Wi-Fi from the building above him, it's Terrence Johnson.
1: <laughs>
0: Hi. How are the two of you doing this evening?
2: Good. good Peach fuzz. Good. Fuzz clear.
0: Yeah, <laughs> okay, Good. <laughs>
2: I'm oh. For sure. Only the best for you. Yep, yeah, Thanks. Glad
0: to, uh, uh, glad to have you guys both back here. I try. I don't try. I don't tend to know what the guests think of the films that we talk on. Abe and I certainly try not to talk to each other about it. But I'm already aware where we generally stand with this movie. But it, it's also I was hard pressed to find people that like really disliked Parasite. So we're just gonna have this conversation once we get to that film. Uh, but I, I am aware that we have some high opinions here. So we'll. Uh, I think we'll have fun talking about this movie. There's a lot to unpack with it. Um, with all of that said, let's get to some show notes real quick. First up, it is the near the end of October, and all of this month we've been doing these uh, very fun uh, horror specials throughout the month. Mike, you're just on one of ours talking about Wes Craven's *People Under the Stairs*,
2: aka *Parasite*. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that joins a number of other specials that we've done, including uh, haunted house films, horror scenes, and non-horror movies and the just-released Practical Effects in Horror Films. Uh, and we will be concluding this month's series of horror specials with a commentary track for The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from director Toby Hooper. Um, so yeah, we're going to do that this week. That should come up on Halloween Day. Uh, so yeah, look out for that one. Uh, what else? iTunes reviews and ratings. Good to get those. Helps out our show. Helps other people find our show. If you log on to iTunes, search for Out Now, there and Abe, you'll find our show, and you can give us a rating review. That'd be great. Thanks in advance.
1: Um,
0: yeah, that's... Um, it for show notes, I think. I gotta I said I teased out the idea of doing a contest again because I have so much stuff lying around to just mail out to people and get it out of my room. So I'll keep teasing that now as I continue to try to think of a contest to come up with.
3: Uh, all right. <laughs> what will they, they be getting?
2: I have stacks of Blu rays um, that are. Not, not, not Godzilla on Criterion, apparently.
0: <laughs> that wouldn't be given away to anybody. Although I do have. Um, was like the first where i can't even see my stack of things i got stuff there's a lot of cool stuff in here there's a do the right thing in there actually among other things uh the new criterion let's see let's get let's move on let's get to some know everybody we each week we ask each other we're each week we ask each other a question or two try to set the tone for the podcast better get to know Hello. everybody Hello, everybody thank you i i appreciate all of the effort that went into that just then shout out to abe <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Have you ever faked your way into a job?
3: Um, Got I don't to, think so.
0: Got to fake I it don't to make think it, so either.
3: Yeah, I don't think so.
0: I went out on a limb with this question because I'm, you know, you guys are upstanding cats. I, you know, I, I don't know.
3: Yeah, it's more like the two sort of career paths that I've had. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really fake. It. so like when I was becoming a construction coordinator working for an engineering company mm-hmm. like I can't you can't really lie on your resume about that the type of skills that you need for that job and then with like social media I guess you could but I it just was like my all of my social media is public so if I was like oh I have 10,000 followers they could easily see that I was wrong mm-hmm.
2: and in my case I've always been in academia <clears throat> and so we're all just kind of faking it <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's fair. No, I get that for sure. Well, we'll get back into that topic once we start talking about parasite a little bit more. Well, <laughs> that out of the way, that's a play. no everybody? Oh no, everybody. <laughs> oh, wait. All right, let's move on. Super hot now, cookies. Each week out now we will be there to talk about those talk about cookies. Yep. All right. TM. Yep. Thank you, Mike. Let's start with you. Have you seen any other movies this week?
2: <clears throat> only thing I've seen is Almodovar's Pain and Glory, oh. and it is wonderful. It's, uh, <clears throat> I don't much want to say anything about it. It's, it's, it's a very layered and complex film that takes some surprising, interesting directions, and it's just great. It's emotionally resonant. It's it's some of his best work, and I I don't have that intimate a relationship with Almodovar. I'm, I'm a little hit and miss with him. I haven't seen a lot of his, um even his recent stuff. I just kind of didn't get around to it, but this one I made time for. It's it stars Antonio Banderas, probably arguably the best performance of his career, I think. It's a
3: wonderful film.
0: I put it high it's, up there, that's for sure.
3: Yeah, it's very good. That's it. That's all I've seen. It's a great movie. Mm-hmm. I love Pedro. Um, so I'm very happy to hear that you like the um with his male muse and Antonio and his I guess late career female muse and uh, Penelope Cruz.
2: Absolutely.
0: It's, uh, yeah, the, I, yeah, I don't want to, I guess, talk too much. I talked about it a little bit before when I saw it, but, I mean, the, there is, the final shot of that movie, like, got me in a way where I was like, oh, I did not expect this, and I'm just, it just, like, left me walking out of the theater with a smile on my face. and uh,
3: Yeah. Among other it,
0: things that are great about that film, but, I mean, that just, that last little touch is like, oh, okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without giving anything away, obviously, it does, because the whole film and a lot of Almodovar stuff does this, but there's always this constant teasing of obvious autobiographical or semi-autobiographical touches throughout. And you start to wonder, well, how much of this is Almodovar playing a version of himself or, or sort of portraying a version of himself with Antonio Banderas as his avatar? But then there's also this question of like, well, is this meant to be some sort of star persona uh interplay between Antonio Banderas and the fictional character and so there's all these interesting self-reflecting layers to the film that unfold and the questions of sort of the fictional character we're watching versus how much of this is sort of Almodovar making sense of his own identity and his own role as a person and uh, as a son as a man as a gay man and as a filmmaker and it all very neatly kind of comes together in this very satisfying uh, emotionally poignant way at the end. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, all no, those,
0: it, it's a. I know it's in limited release, and I think it's spread a little bit wider, but it's probably as wide as it's going to go for the time being. But yeah, it's certainly one to look out for if you can, especially come award season when ideally Ben Daris gets a little bit more talk. I don't know if it goes all the way to Oscar, but certainly in certain circles it'll be something to. <laughs> be notable yeah. for Banderas for sure yeah I mean I'd rather see more talk about Ben Banderas than Joaquin Phoenix so, I, mean, I, I like what Phoenix but it's like I, this Joker movie has kind of like went in and out of my head where there's so many other movies that have things that are going to be memorable for years to come
3: well, that's uh, fascinating I went to the Africa party for a movie I will talk about in my segment uh-huh. um, and I we had gotten invited to to see the Joker and I was like "Oh, I'm thinking about seeing the Joker." Literally everybody I was talking to was like, don't do it. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of which, Terrence, what have you seen recently?
3: So I saw Ford versus Ferrari Uh last Monday, I think it was. Um, Really enjoyed it. Uh, Great studio filmmaking. Christian Bale and Matt Damon are really great. John Bernthal and Tracy Letts. Hopefully they get some supporting actor love. Um, Lex has been season. like
0: a great like supporting player in a lot of things lately. It seems like I know he's been around for it and he's like playwright and everything, but it's like it yeah. just seems like he's popped up in a lot more high profile in terms of awards contender type films as of late. And it's like I like seeing him around. He's a generally reliable person in these movies.
3: Yeah, because like you know he won a Tony and a Pulitzer because mm-hmm. uh, he wrote August Osage County, and he's just a really really talented yeah he's a really talented actor um and he does he there's there's a really really great scene with him. I don't want to spoil it for you but uh, there's a there's a really great scene with him okay. um where like only only a really talented actor could have made that moment work um the second movie I saw was the Irishman heard of it um <laughs> as well here let me,
0: let me ask you was
2: it
3: cinema um, it's no Marvel as, movie, but you know, as my, uh, as my coworkers and I like to joke about movies we maybe don't like, it was feature length. And for this one, I was like, it was more than feature length. Um, people will love it. The performances are really great. I, I was just bored. All right. Here's uh, my question. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I. You have a knack for not knowing the runtimes of films, despite all of the talk about how long this movie is. Did you? Were you aware walking in how long The Irishman was?
3: Oh yes. I mean, yes, that is a <laughs> code. I I knew specifically. I looked up the t- runtime because I was. I knew that there was going to be an after party, and I had to go to work the next day. So I was like, I need to figure out what time this after party will start. And then the movie started late, so I didn't get to the after party till like eleven forty-five.
0: Yeah, because it was a premiere, right? So that's going to start like 30 minutes at least over time.
3: Yeah, it was a lot. Um, Yes, I knew that it was three and a half hours going in. I accidentally checked my phone during the screening thinking that we had been there for like an hour and a half and it was only 45 minutes into the movie. So it's really long. Well, (laughs) I think it will play really well for people. Like I know Martin Scorsese was really big about getting a big theatrical run for it Mm -hmm. as well as having it premiere on netflix but i I really think it will play a lot lot better on netflix well
0: i look forward to seeing it in full on and i have tickets to see it at the egyptian next saturday so we'll see how that goes
3: have fun what else have you seen um i think that was i think that's it on the movie front
0: all right um let's see I have a few things that I'll go over right now. First up is one of the new releases of the week, The Current War, the uh the Snyder cut, of course, or whatever we want to call it. Uh um, this, this film <laughs> uh premiered at festivals like 2 years ago, I believe. It has uh Benedict Cumberbatch, Michael Shannon, Tom Holland, what's the other big English one? It's in there that I'm missing. There's a number of people in there, but it's a, it's it's about the um the whole feud between Edison and Westinghouse with a little bit of Tesla thrown in there. Um, it's a story that I really enjoy, and that was one that I was really intrigued by when Nolan did it in The Prestige back in 2006, where they had David Bowie as a Tesla. And I was like, "This! I would be so happy to actually see a movie that's all about this. And then they made this movie, and I didn't see the previous version of it, but the director's cut of this version. like, they're Basically, the movie screened two years ago. It was with Weinstein. Stuff happened. The movie never came out. Wasn't supposed to be good then, but this because of the Weinstein stuff, they made a director's their director's cut of it, and it's come out now, and I, I I did not like it. It was speaking of boring. I I thought, wow, there's a lot of good actors here, and there's actually some interesting directorial choices to seemingly make it less or more engaging, but I was just not into it. I was it was irritating uh, because of how much potential there is to tell this story. Yeah, I and maybe Benedict Cumberbatch should stay away from biopics for the time being because between this and the Fifth Estate and whatever else, he's it's just every time <laughs> just like these movies don't work for me, um, much as I'd like them to, to some degree. Um, I also watched the, the, la- the
2: Imitation Game.
0: Yeah, the yeah, that was the other one, the Imitation Game. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> best director nominee, Morton Tildum. Um, the Laundromat I watched as well. Uh, the Steven Soderbergh film. I'm a big Steven Soderbergh fan. I look forward to everything he puts out there. Not huge on the laundromat. Speaking of Antonio Banderas, by the way, the movie opens with him and Gary Oldman wearing fancy suits, talking about the origins of money. And right away, I'm thinking, well, this should be fun. And it just kind of goes in and out of being interesting. Like, it's written by... Um, is it Burns? Scotty Burns, who did, like, Contagion with uh, Soderbergh and among other... I think he's done a number of things with him at this point. Um, it's got a Dave Holmes score, which I'm always for when it comes to Soderbergh movies, but... It just didn't like quite find the rhythm that I was after. There's a lot of there's a lot of great actors in this. I mean, you have Meryl Streep in here who wears brown face for some reason. Um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Wright has a whole scene in here. It's like it's divided up into like vignettes. It seems as well. There's like four, like basically like, four or five parts to this film. It, it seems like it wants to be like an, in the realm of like another big short type of film in terms of what it's trying to do, um, but I just. I wasn't as into it as I wanted to be, and I, I like me some Soderbergh. High Flying Birds still one of my favorite movies of the year, um, but yeah, just wasn't too much of a fan. Um, Anna and I we watched we got the screener for The Secret Life of Pets two, so we finally found out if there's more secrets to uh, to learn about pets, <laughs> and um it's <laughs> Illumination's not my jam. I've made that pretty clear on this podcast. It's fine. Like, it has its moments. Harrison Ford plays a dog, and he plays it very Harrison Ford-like. So I was into that, because he's Harrison Ford, and he's all grumpy, but he's a dog. So it's like, oh, he went to the... He, he It seems like he put more effort into this voice narration than he did into the Blade Runner narration. So, you know, you got that going for it. And Kevin Hart has his moments as well. Like, there's stuff in it, but it's just kind of forgettable. Um, and lastly, I was able to see The Evil Dead, which, again, people with this podcast should know, I'm a huge fan of the Evil Dead trilogy. Um, there was a new remastered version of this film that features a 24K restoration, as well as a new score by uh, Joe DeLuca, who did the original score for the 81 feature, and a, new, a whole a new... 20,
3: a 24K? I didn't know they made things
0: that high. I didn't say 24K. I said... I said, a new four, I said a new 4K restoration. I heard 24K as well. You definitely said I will listen back to the tape and we'll see how it sounds. Okay. There was a new remastered version of this film that features a 24K
3: restoration, as well as a. And I was definitely like, "Wow, you must have like some really fancy." Technology. I'm just speaking fast,
0: but there was a new 4K restoration, along with a new score and a new surround, a new surround sound mix. And uh, I talked about this a little bit on the uh, most recent horror special, but as a huge fan of The Evil Dead, like it's, it was really neat to see it just a cleaned-up version of the film that looks about as good as it's ever going to for a movie that was made on the cheap back in the eight, early 80s. But the, uh, the the score in particular I found to be really interesting because I've seen the movie enough where I really I know the beats of that film and how it plays and what it sounds like. So hearing a brand-new score, it's interesting to see how DeLuca basically... He, it's updated, but it's not modern like it still fits like a film that you would have seen at that in that time period. It just has more eeriness going on with it, so there's kind of new i you know having multiple decades worth of compositions behind him i I suppose like he certainly have a he, he's evolved as a musician, so it's interesting to hear how he's taken that film and amped up the eeriness factor. Without taking away from like what makes that low budget film kind of special in its own way, so it w- it was a neat thing to see for sure on the big screen. Um, so yeah, that's what I've seen.
3: Twenty four K. I know what I said. You said <laughs> you definitely said twenty four K. I'm gonna listen back to this.
0: Twenty four K restoration.
3: Um, I forgot one movie that I watched. Yeah, what'd you watch? Uh, Amazing Grace, the Aretha Franklin oh. concert doc. <laughs> um, it was really fascinating to see that because I've been listening to that album like my entire life Mm -hmm. um like i'll randomly just pop in and uh, and so to like see her singing and like the choir singing and in the production of it was really great i don't know how i feel about it as like a movie more so as just like a thing that has captured a moment but it's really really interesting if you want to hear some you know great gospel music and aretha franklin um you should definitely check it out
0: so as a is it just like a recording of the concert itself? It's not there's nothing else going on like in it.
3: So you do get some back to some back to behind the scenes stuff mm-hmm. where they show like the rehearsal of the numbers, but it's really just like you know this performance has become so legendary because it's like Sidney Pollack shot all of this stuff, but he didn't like slate any of the footage or the sound, so people didn't know how to like match up the sound that was being recorded with all of the footage that he shot and it languished and you know it was in like a safe for a while and then these producers bought the rights to it and they assembled it so it's really more like if you got a chance to be in that room in the 70s when she was singing this music this is what you would have experienced and that is the movie hmm.
0: Somehow I missed the fact that Sidney Pollock shot that movie. I didn't realize that until you said it just now. That's what, I don't, I Yeah. I it was that sort part. of like
3: a big thing. And I don't know why I mean, other than like just the technical issue of not slating any of your cameras.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um I don't know why it took so long to get released. You know, that album was the second best selling gospel album of all time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, but it was it was a lot of fun.
0: You think Kanye's album is going to overtake it? His new gospel album?
3: No. <laughs> There's, I don't, I've, and I'm not listening to Kanye, so I have no idea of, of the quality. Um, but if any of his <laughs> music since uh, Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy or whatever that one was called, everything has been garbage. So I don't expect this to be any better.
0: Uh, talk about Watchmen a little bit, because I know you and I have both been watching the show. I mentioned it last oh, yes. week. I mentioned it last week because I watched the pilot like just before we did this episode, and um, mm-hmm. now I've just and I think we both just watched the second episode just before recording this episode.
3: We definitely have. Um, I love the graphic novel. So do I. I even like the Zack Snyder movie. So do I. <laughs> um, well, I have to feel like I have to state that because I, I don't know what other people were expecting with that movie and why they hate it so much <laughs> because of like. It kind of, I kind of got what I was expecting from like an adaptation of, of Watchmen. Um, I think the first
0: half is pretty terrific, and then the rest is fine. But I mean, overall, for a movie well, like I, that, like it, it yeah, doesn't. And I
3: think as an adaptation in the year that it was adapted, so it came out in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. the changes that they made from the graphic novel, most notably the ending. Yes, it's like all that was very smart. It is a very smart adaptation of the material. Maybe not the best version, but I don't ever think you're going to get the best version of the graphic novel, which is why I sort of like what the show is doing in that it's referencing things that are in the graphic novel. But this really is more of a standalone sequel story. Mm -hmm. Regina King is amazing. I put her in everything. I love her. Sister Knight. I loved her so much that I made her costume in a week for this Halloween party I threw on Saturday which is the most stress I've ever been trying to make the costume. I like the show and I'm willing to stick with it. I'm thoroughly confused as to like what the point it's ultimately trying to make is, you know, and not on some like, I know that we still have seven more episodes, but I'm kind of like, I don't mind being in this world with these characters and these people in these themes, but, like, where exactly are we going?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I think in comparison to the, the graphic novel, which put its focus on the Cold War, um, among other, like, various themes, uh, I think that, you know, that's a, a a large issue to go after at that time that makes a lot of sense, where now, I think racial tension is a huge thing to kind of go after, and, what, you know, the tension, the things involving white supremacy or what have you, I can see what the show's, tr- I can see what Lindelof is aiming at right now as a kind of Central premise of what he wants to explore with this show, and yeah, as you said, yeah, yes, there, are, there are seven more episodes to kind of ideally round out whatever point he's trying to make. But I can see the on a gen on a like a on a macro level,
3: I get yeah, what I angle get he's coming it. at it with because it's both very very confusing and also very very in your face. Um, I don't quite know how. I am going to feel if like every single week the show opens, I'm going to be confronted with like racism. (laughs) It's because it's one of those things where it's like some of the the stuff by nature of being a a black person, you already know. Mm -hmm. And so like in a way, the show is also functioning as like an education for people who don't know, you know, about the Tulsa race massacre. But like when you do know, Already going into it, it's like, oh Jesus! Here we go again. Like this, some something bad is going to happen to a black person at the start of every single episode of this television show. In the effort,
0: don't you see? I don't want to to do too much of a watch, but don't you see a necessity in that for people that just are frankly ignorant or naive to the idea of these things?
3: I do, but I don't. But that's also why I kind of want a little bit more about where the show is going and the ultimate point, like, because if we're just doing this just for historical setting. Like you did that already in the first week, you know, the second week we get a much more interesting look, but it's also like, okay, you know, this is, it's like, and maybe I'm just feeling this way because it's like set in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And so it's fairly easy to dig into like issues of race when you're, when Oklahoma is seen as like this redneck, state you know Mm -hmm. and so it's like everything is on the surface um which is what made the reveal sort of at the end of this episode really great because you got to see you got to peek under the surface a little bit sure um so yeah i'm just i'm i'm I'm, i will be watching every week but like i i do think i need a little bit more
0: (laughs) i hear you i understand what you're saying
3: um okay
0: Mike, are you in the Watchman world at all? Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, no. Okay. I have no idea what you guys are talking about.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it's it's a show. It's invading cinema or something. You know, whatever happens. Um, all right. That was enough, Quickies. Let's uh, move on now. Let's get to our trailer talk of the week where you we talk about one of the newest movie trailers, what we thought of it, when it's coming out, what have you. Um, well, let's get into Richard Jewell, the new Clint Eastwood feature that's coming out this December, which he. I guess what hastily assembled once again. He started filming maybe earlier this year, like, and then um, got it locked and loaded and ready for a release uh, in a, a month and a half. Um, this is based off a true story involving the events at the Summer Olympics where there was an attack. Uh, this man, Richard Jewell, a uh, security guard, was. Well, I don't know how far I want to go into historical spoilers, but basically he might have been involved in this thing. Um, the actor Paul Walter Hauser uh, plays uh, Richard Jewell. He's best known for what Black Klansman and Itania. Um, it also has a stacked cast featuring Sam Rockwell, Kathy Bates, John Hamm, Olivia Wilde. Mike, I know you've you uh, you've chosen not to watch the trailer because you're not big tra- on trailers in general, correct?
2: Correct, but uh, I'll just take the opportunity to shout out uh, one of the great. Professors of, uh, and historians of classical Hollywood cinema. He used to be at USC. His name is Richard Jewell. No relation. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's all. Okay, thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome.
0: But Terrence, what'd you think of the trailer?
3: Um, I think that the subject matter is worthy of the big screen treatment.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I think there are a lot of great actors in this. I just am very unsure about. Eastwood's motivations um, behind this project. And that is giving me pause about, you know, being interested in seeing this movie. Just because I'm like, is this going to be a story about how, like, we need to be more empathetic? Or is this just like, oh, we want to tell a story about a wronged white guy. And I just don't after grand Torino, i just can't be too sure <laughs> or like what was, the mule was that the movie was his last one yeah like, like i just i i don't know what the motivation is to tell the story i can um, s-
0: i can see that angle at the same time it just at least eastwood is so like not even ambiguous just kind of like not into it on that level it's like it's seeing like in the way he chooses to tell these stories it seems like he yeah that's his, what i'm his, saying his it's mind like, is, is kind of beyond the whatever kind of political association you want to make with it. It's more like leading up to the viewer, which I guess is ideal in some ways. I, I know I, I know what you're saying. I Yeah, I just I
3: just am like there's something about it that feels very like political, but without him and that like not even anything to do with like just him being like Republican just in in like making a statement. And so I'm like, okay, Clint, like why? Aren't you supposed to have been like retired now like how many movies is this well, he's,
0: i mean i'd say he's supposed to be retired from acting but yeah he's coming a year after acting in the lead role
3: of his movie um yes and i, and I applaud him for making these movies and making them very quick even though they haven't been that good uh i just yeah, I just don't know what to make of it. But it does, the subject matter is very interesting and the actors are great, so I'll say maybe this. it will align.
0: I do think this is like right in the ballpark of what Eastwood does quite well when it comes to one man against a system type of thing. Like I think Sully worked really effectively because of that. Uh, I mean, there's a number of other films that you could all kind of apply in some way. Not all of them are hits. Not all of them are successes. And it has been a, I'd say, a bumpy road for Eastwood in the 2010s in general. That said. It's written by Billy Ray, it's got a good cast. As you mentioned, I do think the kind of I do think there's an interesting story to tell here and I do think this is kind of in the best zone that Eastwood can work with when it comes to these kind of historical dramas even though the history tends to be fairly recent. Um, and I is it my number one thing I need to see this December? No, but I do think there's
1: <laughs> I think I
0: do think there's a story that could be interesting to see him tell here and I, I I look forward to it more than I don't in that regard. Mike, do you have any thoughts on Eastwood in general as a director in these past few years?
2: Uh, No, you're right. I think Gran Torino was his last interesting, if not good, movie. And like, I'm really anti-American sniper. And so, I mean, I think you're right. He he just kind of wades into these very politically fraught types of narratives without actually weighing in on anything or even taking a perspective. And I think partly we're a little, what, reluctant, to assume his politics are in the right place or in an agreeable place because when we picture Eastwood in the last decade, we picture him like berating the empty chair at the RNC.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
2: so, so that, that kind of con, like image that we've come to associate him with, I don't know how much of that actually bleeds into his creative work, but it's, it's a hard association to shake loose when you're talking about him as a, as an auteur, right? And so you kind of wonder, is he taking up a political stance with, which, with regard to this story? Or is he not doing that and just kind of churning out these movies that interest him? And in a way, that's even more obnoxious, right, to take these really rich subject matters and <clears throat> not doing a whole lot with them or not, not appearing to uh, kind of be issuing any kind of cogent perspective that would make for uh, like a, a, a more richly layered discussion of, of the subject matter. So he's...
0: I mean, I, I don't want to presume too much, I do, but I do think he has more of like an interest in just being a filmmaker and playing like when he did Sully he's like, I'm gonna shoot with IMAX cameras cause why not? Like it just like has this attitude where he just wants to like get the work done and then leave it up to anybody else to have views on it, which is I can, you could say obnoxious, I could say admirable just because it's like he's so hands off with seemingly everything except the process of making a movie. Even the actors. Like he's not an actors director, as people very well know. It's like he just kinda lets them go and it's like, Yeah, all right, I'll move on. And it's like
1: that's so I guess-
2: yeah, I, I've been aware of this Richard Jewel Richard Jewel project uh, mm-hmm. for a few years. I know it was uh, it was attached to like Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill for a while. Mm-hmm. So that's when I first came. Uh, it was brought to my attention. But I like they made like it's... Wolf of Wall Street, and they're like, "What well, we should do another thing together? How about yes. Richard Jewel? <laughs> High fives! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I gotta say, I, so I was like kind of intrigued by the subject matter, uh, and I'm less interested knowing that Eastwood came on board to direct it because. I think it's just going to be kind of workmanlike but not mm-hmm. particularly interesting or provocative. Fair enough. And, yeah, I mean, unless the reviews uh, you know, indicate otherwise, I'll always give it a chance but it's, you know, not on my list. The Mule was not on my list. Still haven't seen it actually. That... So, yeah. You know. Look, I'm just looking at his
0: like filmography. His 2000s are fascinating as far as the films he made. <laughs> uh, you know, two or the 20 like 10s less so. There's just more like bumpy all around, but you have like million dollar baby the flags though flags our father's letters of you with Jima like back to back thing he did, changeling which I really like, Gran Torino I'm not as big on but I know people love it for whatever reason. Uh, it's, it's just a lot of like weird and then Invictus where they're like Matt Damon needs an Oscar like why not right that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, All these supporting performances let's give one to let's supported. give one out to Matt Damon for playing white soccer oh, player.
3: <laughs> I mean he was good in the in the movie but not awards No one's good. looking
0: at Invictus and be like, "Man, remember when Matt Damon really killed it in Invictus?" Like, no one's going to say <laughs> that. <laughs> There'll be more talk about We Bought a Zoo than Invictus in the Matt Damon career retrospective.
3: <laughs> uh, we Bought a Zoo.
0: They bought one. <laughs> that was that movie. They bought the zoo. Uh Richard Jewell, a movie we were currently talking about, <laughs> opens uh December 13th. So yeah, it uh, premieres. I think it's the closing film at the AFI Film Festival uh, later this month, but uh, later in later November. But yeah, December thirteenth, everyone can uh, see a new trailer for something before they watch uh, Richard Jewell in theaters a week before Star Wars. All right, let's move on now. Let's get to our main review for Parasite.
3: Is it okay we do? <laughs> 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 우리 다송이는 완전
1: 그린 거죠. <laughs>
3: That should
2: have
1: been some of the
0: trailer for Parasite. This is a dark comedy about a poor family taking advantage of an opportunity that presents itself once the son gains position as a tutor with a rich family in their fam- in their big home. Soon, the sister also finds herself working for the family, then the mother, and, well, you kind of get it. With the family having infiltrated this home, leeching off of the rich to provide a better lifestyle for themselves, things seem almost too perfect until they aren't. Director Bong Jun ho won the Palme d'Or, a unanimous vote at the Cannes Film Festival this year. Terrence, do you think he earned it?
3: Oh, absolutely. This is one of the best movies I've seen in a very, very long time. It's one of my favorite movies of the decade. I, I just can't believe that he was able to have so many elements and so many genres in this movie and like so many ideas and not have them fall apart. By the end and have them all working in conjunction, um, with each other. It's like it, the trailer is very thriller-esque, but this is also like a really, really funny movie, but also like really, really uncomfortable to watch. And, and like it's funny because of how uncomfortable it is to watch. So I, yeah, I totally, this would have been, I, I haven't seen, I've only seen a couple of other movies that were at, uh, that festival but I mean this would have been my surefire winner.
0: Mike you've just recently seen Parasite what would you think of the film? Uh,
2: I'm big thumbs up um, it's easily one of the best films of the year <clears throat> uh, yeah I haven't encountered I've been in a lot of conversations with various people about it and uh, it's like you alluded to in the beginning I can't find anybody who isn't very positive on it uh, it's so thematically rich and ambitious and makes for great discussion about all of its little interpretive details. And it's it's great how unpredictable it is, even though the film ostensibly kind of ends up right where it started. There's this sort of circular logic to it. I found it surprising how unpredictable and how, um, even though the film is pretty thematically consistent in what it's doing, which you know we'll, we'll discuss, um, it looks and feels very different by the end than when it begins. And I think that's a real credit to Bong's ability to Engage this very deft balancing act um, in mashing up genres, because it's something he he does a lot in a lot of his films. But the, I mean, it's partly a home invasion movie. It's also kind of a kind of a heist movie in the vein of like an Ocean's Eleven or something. Because Mm it's you know this team of con artists who are installing themselves into this household. But it's also a, a social satire. It has elements of slapstick. It's very funny, but also Sometimes quite sad and also pretty frightening um, in some areas. Right? There's a section of the film that's built on a very simple, kind of frightening and unnerving premise of just like something living in your basement and parasitically living off of you that you didn't even know was there. That's a you know viscerally spooky idea. So it's 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 got some excellent, very Hitchcockian sequences that are also simultaneously quite uh, amusing. And so yeah, big thumbs up.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to disagree at all. I've been a big fan of Bong Joon-ho for quite some time at this point, seeing his various... I first saw the host in theaters, and I was like, well, this was amazing. What else has he done? And I was like, oh, Memories of Murder. I'm going to check that out immediately, and was big on that. I've still never seen Barking Dogs Never Bite, which I need to correct very soon. Um, but yeah, since then, Mother, Snowpiercer, Okja, like, I've just been a big fan of the man, so hearing that he had a new film that won the Palme d'Or, is like, yay, okay, I get a new film from him, and it's already won, like, a prestigious honor at the Cannes Film Festival, and going into it, I didn't want to know anything about it, I didn't know anything about it, and I came out of it absolutely floored and thrilled by what I just saw. You mentioned Hitchcock uh, offhand, who was generally in my top three of directors ever, and I see lots of movies that... I can, you know, describe as Hitchcockian in some way or see, like, how elements of his films have rubbed off on certain filmmakers. This will... This is... Parasite's one that does it very, very well. Like, better than most films that I see that at least seem to be trying to do that to some degree. Uh, Having... Somehow mixing the kind of the idea of a thrilling scenario that has a level of humor to it as well as depth on numerous levels when it comes to the characters, the thematics going on, the drama... Uh, it's so effective in how it, how moments like these are played throughout this film. Um, And it is, as you said, Terrence, it's, it's impressively funny at times, as far as the kind of blending of frankly slapstick type of humor in some points and just other things involving the dialogue or the scenarios, some of which do feel predictable because you're like, okay, this is what needs to happen now. Right. But it's not about the fact that, you know, that it's coming it's more the suspense of the situation and, like, how it's going to happen and what's going to come after it. And that's where things really take a turn because there's a point where once this family has installed themselves, it's like, okay, where does it go now? And then it does take new directions that I, I could not predict whatsoever. There's no way I could have, like, thought of, okay, this is – these are the places it's going – like, as you just said, Mike, like, it by the end of this movie, I, I – I didn't think this is where I would be versus the beginning of this movie. Like, there's not, a, there's not a point where I'm thinking, well, this is naturally where it has to go by its conclusion. And I applaud the film for that because, yes, it's nice to be surprised in terms of the story. But even regardless, it's just so entertaining throughout, whether it's because I'm so, like, held up in my tenseness from it or because the performance is on display or the humor or what have you. It's phenomenally acted. It's incredibly well made. We'll talk about the use of sets and the class-based society system and how that reflects on the film. Every number, but like all of these things just come together to make for one of the best movies of the year, easily.
2: And and can I point out, since you're mentioning we're in agreement that the film takes these really unpredictable turns, mm-hmm. it's worth noting that um the the trailers, the US trailers, do a really good job of keeping what's secret secret. Um, I, I recuse myself from the Richard Jewell conversation because I typically shy away from watching trailers but i did look at this one after i'd seen the film and mm-hmm. i was pleasantly surprised by how how little they give away yeah it is i mean
0: it plays up the thriller aspect i'm like all right but like in terms of what it's actually telling you happens it is pretty vague and i do i can appreciate that to a degree
2: and i also as yeah. you mentioned the how Nicely executed the suspense sequences are but at the same time some of the most suspenseful scenes are based around sort of absurd things uh, Going on. So for instance one of the more suspenseful sequences just simply involves whether this mother is going to be able to cook up this batch of noodles in time Mm -hmm. for the (laughs) For the family to get home. So so he's he's constantly aware of Kind of balancing these these tonal shifts between something that's inherently kind of silly and comical with like really high-stakes suspense yeah
3: Mm -hmm. yeah you mentioned um the set design aaron and i think one of the interesting things that i learned on like nathaniel rogers film experience podcast is that the houses in this movie like they built those those are not like existing homes i'm glad to
0: know that that's okay
3: um so they built you know from the ground up all of those sets and particularly when you think about um you know, it's really, it's like a huge feat of production design in terms of like the spaces where these characters live and how they occupy. And it really sort of feeds into the family. Like you see the, where they live and how like, like when they start conning the rich family to sort of get in with them, sort of the, the turn, the, the way that turns the characters and their personalities and the things that they want. And it's all sort of based on like, Initially seeing where they live, let's, so it, let's talk that about was really that cool to see. Yeah, yeah.
2: Like, add, it was, yeah, My understanding, just just to give credit where credit is due, my understanding is that the entire street that they live on is a set because hmm. they they uh, flooded it with water. That's from what I I, yeah, I
0: mean, that has to be the case right. given the positioning of it. So just just to get into it, the fan the the poor family in this film, led by the father played by Song Kang Ho, who's Ter- who's a terrific actor? I've seen him in so
3: many films. Yeah. He's
0: like, what well, he's I think he's regarded as like one of the best actors in Korea, in
3: South Korea. Yeah, one of their biggest stars
0: for sure. And he's t- terrific in this film, just as he is in most films. The whole cast is like very good in this film, but it's always neat to see. He he has such a great face. Like he's able to convey a lot of different kinds of emotions depending on the film that he's in. But this family, they're poor. They live in like a basement of an apartment like it's 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 the worst like possible place it's so bad like there's a window that you can look out of where they see the street where bums come and pee like that's like that's that's the view that they generally get that it's they have a bathroom where the toilet is like stacked high above everything and it's like mm-hmm. really awkward and then imagine that place flooding and where things are coming out of it's just nasty like it's a disgusting apartment that they live in versus the rich people's home uh, the the Park family, uh, where it's this, it's it's gated, it's by itself, it's modern. It has multiple floors to it, so while you have, like, your to go to the poor family, you have to go down into these depths in this nasty area, and the rich family, you go higher and higher because of this, like, great big building they have that's full of this modern technology and the fancy kitchen that has all these new things in it and stuff. It's such a great contrast between the two. And it, and knowing now that, yes, that they're made, that they're sets, that's not, not too surprising, but it is, like, I, I can admire that all the more because of the work that had to go into something like that, just as much work as... You know, making the snow piercer train or, you know, creating a monster from scratch or any other things that, or like anything else that he's done in his past
3: films. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's really interesting to look at it in terms of like the cultural differences just from us here in the U.S. Because I, I think about like I went to New York in September and I stayed in like the bottom of a like brownstone mm-hmm. by Airbnb. But like there is, about five or six feet from the window to the street you know but like in this movie like their home is like right on the street they just happen to be sort of underground so like their window really is at street level and so it's really interesting to see you know that space and how cramped they are and and when they get to the rich family not only is it like oh like we go higher and higher there's just more room and so the characters get to discover things Mm -hmm about themselves and be involved in, in more mess by virtue of the fact that they're spread out and they have all of these sort of different storylines that sort of, you know, spread from that.
2: And, and the, the architecture of the two dwellings is kind of, I mean, the house, the, the central house is just this marvelous bit of production design and it's kind of a character in itself. But these class disparities are reflected in those designs, right? Because the two families are sort of doppelgangers of each other. And I think one of the interesting features of the the main house, the the Park family house, are these gigantic windows that look out into the yard, which is of course a, a direct analog to the very dismal view outside the basement window of the other home.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and also, I mean, the fact that it's uphill, right? And I, and I don't yeah. know enough about the the geography of the city, but this idea of sort of the the rich people live above and the uh, the poor people live down below, and that's kind of Put into emphasis when there is because I alluded to there being a flood sequence, and so all the the rainwater flows downhill, right? It ends up flooding the, uh, the neighborhood of the the poor section of town. Whereas the rich people are completely clueless as to what's been going on in another part of the city because the, the following morning they're like, "Oh, what a lovely day! Let's throw a party!" Right? They have no clue as to uh, how devastating this flood was down down below. I
0: think the next question i have what can lead us into spoiler territory so i'm just going to say right now if you have not seen parasite yet and you plan to and you want to discover things about the film for yourself uh, feel free to you know obviously pause this podcast go out and see the movie then immediately come back and finish re- listening to this podcast of course i mean you could just do it yeah. twice if you want to that just makes sense let's do it twice i get you know you
3: literally <laughs> stop listening and go see the movie do not listen to anything else because this is it's it's way better when you don't know what's going on for sure um uh,
0: and there will be timestamps on this episode, of course, as well. So if you want to listen to the rest of it without hearing the whole review, you, can, you know skip ahead if you need to. Um, my question is, because I, and I, obviously, we all live in America. I, I don't know the kind of exact dynamics when it comes to South Korea and how the class societies are based. But I, I'm curious if the, if I kept thinking, like, is there something that I'm missing as far as how Korea would view this film versus like people from the, you know, from the, from the out, outside of that culture at the same time? It does feel like the themes are pretty universal, as far as you know, rich versus poor, that kind of thing. But what what do you have to say about kind of the use of theme in this film? I think it's we've seen it a lot in this year in general in movies. I mean, sorry, Mike, you were on for the the uh, Jordan Peele's Us for that podcast where we're dealing with some specific things that are fairly similar. What
2: do you... Upstairs, downstairs.
0: Yes.
3: If you were if you wanted to know how it's doing in Korea, it's made the equivalent of seventy million U.S. dollars. Oh, there you go. In South Korea, I think that for some reason and this might just be me having being so entertained by how like it took me a minute to really get into the fact that this was like a story about class mm-hmm. um not that i didn't recognize it as i was watching it but that it just really became apparent in the days after i saw it sure. um in terms of like what he might have been trying to say about class because i think it goes deeper than just like Oh, these people have a lot of money. These other people don't. And that's why the people who don't have to go to like these drastic measures. Cause I think about, um, the rich wife and how like initially we're like, oh, like she's just really dumb. Mm-hmm. But like the more the movie goes on, the more it's just like, oh, she has come from a place where she has not had to do anything. And so she's dealing with all of these things that she's never had to do in her life. And they get the old housekeeper out of the paint, you know, before she comes back into the picture. And it's like it throws her world sort of for a loop. So it was really interesting to look at it, you know, from that perspective. And and not just like, oh, like having all of this money and other people not having it is any good, but it's just like, but also look what it can do to you when you do have this money in terms of just not, giving you the grounding that you need.
0: And surely, like, a nature versus nurture thing plays into that as well, where you have someone like Mr. Park, who's a successful businessman of some kind, um, versus, like, the rest of this, the, 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 the key take family? I'm trying, I, then the Kims, the Kim family. Key, key take is that song. Called. The Kim family, where they're all fairly smart. I mean, they all, they're all clever enough to do the things that they need to do, even if it goes by yeah. sheer means. Like, they all have, between being able to use computers well, uh, you know, being crafty enough to get these various jobs, being a cook, being a driver, being an English teacher, even if it's not, I don't know how effective they were as these kind of things, but, like, there's yeah. there's certainly a lot to say for how, mu- how much, despite having, you know, the world push them downwards, they still have their wits about them to handle things in, in ways that suit,
2: suit them. Can I... Make make a stab at your question about you know what is it about South Korean culture that this might be addressing, and this is Mm -hmm. kind of a loose set of uh, ideas. But but before we get off that track, I wanted to maybe propose a couple of different interesting aspects. Um, Obviously, uh, there there are certain class-based themes that I think are I I don't know if they're universal, but they certainly seem to be resonating with audiences at least over here. So there are some areas that are maybe a little bit more accessible to different audiences. But one is you know these Asian societies tend to be a little bit more so sort of like one important metaphor I feel in the, fa- uh, in the film is that of the family unit
1: mm-hmm. um, because yeah, you essentially yeah. have
2: three three family units upstairs downstairs and basement which we'll get into but you know it's it's not that family values and sort of nuclear families aren't a hugely important cultural uh, institution in the United States but in Asian societies it is a little bit more common for sort of generations to kind of live within the same, Dwelling um, parents and grandparents sometimes live together and, and kind of take care of each other. That's a bit more common as opposed to the U.S. It tends to be a little bit more individualistic. And there's this idea of people sort of leaving the nest when they're 18 and things like that. And so I was very interested in how the film seems to be tying this kind of fracturing of the family unit to issues of class. And this is why the ending, not to jump ahead too much, but it does propose the idea that if only this main character could be rich one day, Mm -hmm. if he attained enough wealth, then he could reunite his family. But of course, Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
2: the film presents that, uh, insofar as the film presents class mobility as kind of impossible and futile, uh, and therefore the symbolic family unit will forever remain fractured. That seems like part of the, maybe the heart of the film's criticism of how class inequity kind of tears through society, maybe. Uh, and another another uh, potentially uh,
0: relevant I'm, area. I'm nodding that, and thinking yeah. about these things, but yes, I hear what you say. saying. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the other thing um, is that it's it, it, it does present a critique of people who kind of pursue ostentatious wealth and prestige, but it's also about globalization because of how they fake their associations with the United States, and they take up these Anglo names as part of their con Mm-hmm. Is, that is an important aspect in how they give themselves instant credibility with these wealthy people, right? So the film does seem to point out that like cosmopolitanism is itself something that's not accessible to everyone in the same way, even if they share the same culture and national identity. Because it comes very naturally and easy to the wealthy, but it's completely an act, and it's borrowed and performed for others because it's the only way you can get ahead, even if you really can't access it for real. And I feel like that's particularly um, true of the non-Western cultures in which the West kind of looms large in terms of its soft power and its cultural influence, right? The ability to tap into that gives you this sort of identity uh, playing along with different identity structures that you can kind of use to get ahead or fall behind.
0: It makes me wonder what the inevitable, like, U.S. remake of this is going to capitalize on. Like, I I don't know how you take these kind of things and apply it to, (laughs) to a film where, like, you're already... In, like, white America, I mean, I guess you can just... It makes it obvious, I guess, if you have, like, a black family versus a white family or whatever, um, but it's just, like, it's its far less satisfying because it seems like a story that you either already know because, well, you already know it, or there's just so much flavor that's lost by <laughs> doing it that way.
3: Um, well, yeah, because, w- like, I think what makes this movie work sort of as, like, in, we are Americans watching it is, like, that it is a difference in... In culture, and so like we are disc we are discovering and we're learning things about the class system in Korea, about the family structure over there, um and there are certain movies that lend themselves to being remade American style, and there are certain movies that don't just because you lose that flavoring. And it's not to say that like you know down the line if they do remake this that they can't figure out a way to to make it work in America, but I just think like our customs and things here and how we approach things are a little different and that some of the stuff wouldn't happen. But, you know, people hiding in the basement, uh, that is something we could, you know, we could make work here. Uh, That was probably the thing that I was the most shocked actually worked in this movie. Um, So let's push into that. Yeah. (laughs) Because Uh, mm -hmm. when that old housekeeper came back and just started moving things around in the basement. I was like, what is going on? And then we found out that her husband has been living down there all this time. It just bonkers. Like, this movie is crazy. And, like, that should have derailed. That would have derailed any other movie making a tonal switch like that. And yet somehow it just added to this movie um, and gave it just a jolt that it didn't even need.
0: There, the the kind of the move that it takes to introducing okay, there's a there's a, a subdwelling here, um, where you have a and and then you think of the implication that's been going on where this person's been stranded down there for I guess like weeks and not understanding necessarily or what have you. Like there's there's a lot to take away there. I mean, you you already have established as we mentioned the kind of the have and have nots, and then it gets there's like one layer deeper where there's like it's not even a matter of being a poor family in an apartment that takes an advantage of an opportunity, that was just literally being stuck in the worst possible scenario. Um, reasoning behind that, regardless, there it's just this, what shape does that take? How does that shape a person, who they are? And obviously the film takes, dr- it, it pushes it to dramatic levels to show what that's done to somebody, especially when things are taken away from them, which I think adds to the themes of w- what we're getting into when it comes to how... Having status, you know, increases a certain awareness of what you have or decreases it. But then you have someone that has nothing else to live for and what steps they take to go on from there. It it adds a lot of new wrinkles as far as, okay, this is, I don't know what this is. There is humor to be gained from this. There's thrills to be gained from this. And I also, I still want to root for the people that are already taking advantage of others. But are now in a different predicament. Like, it, Mike, where would you come away with this new element that was added, like into well, this like second half of the film?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, it's not just that they come face to face with the reality that there is an even a more desperate uh-huh. family in the situation beneath them, right? That there's a poorer. Um, more squalid family, but but that the people below are arguably a more serious level of con artists. I mean, this family has been parasitically using this family for like a few weeks, but the people downstairs have been doing it for years, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because the very existence of the secret bunker, which is... Uh, holding this man downstairs who's been hiding out for years. I guess he's dodging creditors or something like that. It was, yeah. Something of that nature. I'm trying to yeah, But the existence. Yeah. The, the very fact that the bunker exists is yet loan another. Sharks. Yeah. He's been eating yeah, yeah. loan sharks. <laughs> the, the existence of the bunker is yet another reflection of the wealth of the Park family. Because what the film doles out is that with wealth comes a degree of convenience and not having to worry about things as long as they're kind of kept out of sight. And this is why. Mm-hmm. The architecture plays such an important role in the film. If you're living in these squalid conditions, you're living in direct and cramped proximity to the things that ail you. But this family is so rich, they don't even realize how rich they are because they don't even know about the basement underneath, Um, which means, I mean, they're so blind to the world outside of their sort of insular little bubble that they don't even realize they're being scammed on multiple levels as long as nothing disrupts their world and their equilibrium. And so interesting that what ends up disrupting that equilibrium is a squabble between the poor family and the very poor family (laughs) and not kind of a, a a call to arms or or anything like that. A sense of comeuppance. It's just like there's other things happening or or even kind of, Something that involves the lower classes realizing their common struggle and joining forces to rise up against the rich, which would be more in line with the kind of a classically Marxist revolutionary call to action. And so the film feels more somber and nihilistic in whether it imagines any way that the class disparities that produce these mutually parasitic relationships are ultimately escapable because
3: the everything kind of
2: falls apart at the end. These opportunities for alliances never really come to fruition.
3: Yeah, I think that's what I really liked about that moment because it, it does feel very true to life at least and this is something where it's interesting to think about it from like an American lens like we have this whole idea of like pull, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and like you know oh like trickle down economics and all of these things that are all about like okay like eventually like you will be able to do it too but there's never really like uh, okay like me and this other person and this other person can come together and do it too and like that the Kim family is only thinking about the fact that somebody being in the basement is going to ruin their standing with this new life that they've attained. And so like, they have a pressure to like keep them down there. Um, so even though they have the knowledge, it's just like, okay, like we can't have, you know, this crazy man and his wife upsetting the new established order that we've got, um, which ends up coming back to bite them in the end, so I'm like wondering if he's is making a statement there because when they leave the you know the basement open and the guy comes up and causes just a chain reaction of chaos and craziness, it's all because of the mistakes that the poor family has made, and not the rich one.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think
2: it's interesting also to note, just to bite off of that a little bit, that the man in the bunker, he's obviously been driven insane to some degree, but he's come to become like, worshipful of the man of the house. Uh-huh. Like he, like, reveres the family upstairs in some some very strange way. And so when he emerges at the end to wreak havoc, it's specifically to take a revenge against the Kim family for, like, disrupting this balance. Uh-huh. Right? I feel like that goes along with what Terrence yeah. is saying.
0: Who do you think Bong sides with in all of this?
1: Oh. Oh.
0: Obviously, he, seals, he probably feels the most sympathetic towards the Kim family, specifically to the father, the uh, father.
3: Um, I'm not, or I'm so not sure actually, sure. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because I think that by having the way this movie ends, and this took me a minute to get to, cause at first I was like, Oh, like this is a vision of the future. And I'm like, Oh no, wait, like this is just a fantasy. Yeah.
0: It, it, 25th hours. That's what I was going
3: to think. Yeah. About. Like <laughs> yeah. this guy is never getting out of this, you know, is never going to come back out of this basement. So I don't know if it's, it's sympathy more. So as like everybody is getting what they need to get. Maybe not necessarily what they deserve, mm-hmm. but just what they need to get in the narrative. I think if anybody, he feels sympathy for the, the park, uh, the mom, you know, just because uh, of all I think she has to do with, I mean,
2: overall the film is maybe harder on the rich for being so out to lunch, basically, because... The, the, that was the poor,
3: my next question,
2: yeah. Yeah, the poor people are definitely, they're shown being far more adept at knowing where the class boundaries are and how to manipulate them to their advantage, because they prove to be, they're not just opportunists, but they're like real mentalists, right, in, in how they are able to insinuate themselves into this household through Mm -hmm. uh, subtleties in their body language and little gestures that are designed to win over these rich people who, who aren't asking all the right questions and because they live in such luxury, it never occurs to them that some harm could come to them. Right. And so along those lines, there's actually another character. It's mostly these three families, but there's another character that falls in line with this, which is the college friend who gets all this started.
1: Um, Mm -hmm.
2: He's obviously better off. uh, He's, I guess, going to study abroad and he, gives this tutoring gig to his friend, who is our main character. And it, it seems like an act of charity because the guy needs the work, but it's actually kind of a, a condescending thing that he does because his secret agenda is that he's developed a crush on this rich family's daughter, who he is tutoring, and he presumes that this poor kid would uh, be so grateful for the job opportunity that he won't pose any kind of a threat to his sexual designs on the girl, right? Because he says, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. my they would all like come on to her, but you know you'll be fine. I trust you. So he expects him to act as this placeholder, and he's the expectation is he's not going to become a rival, a sexual rival. And how you know it's yet another iteration of how wrong the the wealthy people are to underestimate
3: mm-hmm. the
2: resourcefulness um, of the uh, of the underclasses.
3: Yeah, and he he also gives him um, this rock, which proves to be a really crucial part of the story. Although you don't really, like at first it plays, it's like, oh, like this thing brought them all this luck. Um, and then it's used as a weapon uh, later on in the movie. And so, yeah, that's really interesting. I, yeah, I don't know if, if he's, if Bong is is sympathetic to anybody, really. I think he's pretty hard on all of these characters, but it's just done in such like a, a comical way that you don't even feel like how hard he's being on the Kim family until the end with that fantasy sequence. Like that weeks later, like was destroying me because I was like, dang, like he's never going to get his father back.
0: (laughs) It's, I feel like the people that actually die in this film are the ones you feel the worst for, like in terms of, who they chose to take out of this story because I Uh like like it's the ones that maybe deserve it the least as far as like everybody involved in all of this with that said though to pivot in a different direction let's talk about the comedy in this movie because it is Mm -hmm. it is very funny and we keep alluding to the fact that it's funny but why is it funny like where what are the things that kind of hit you guys as far as What's working at this level? I mean, there's some dark laughs for sure. There's a moment yes. where, as you were talking about Mike, uh, the whole preparing the noodles type of scene. There's a whole situation where not only are they juggling, are not only is like the mother and the Kim family like juggling a bunch of things. There's a portion where someone's trying to come up some stairs, and to solve the situation, she just kicks them back down the stairs. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's both like it's kind of horrifying because that's
3: very violent, <sighs> but at the same
0: time, it's hysterical.
3: No, that was really funny when that yeah. happened. Um, yeah, I think that this movie realizes that comedy comedy is, comes from pain, but it also comes from just stretching things past sort of what the natural limit is. So I think, I mean, the fun, one of the funniest sequences to me was when all of them were huddled under that table. Yeah. That was one of my favorite moments. It's just the editing, um, the production design again, because they built – that table specifically to be big enough for four people to fit under um, so that they could choose that. Game. It's a
0: wonderful symbol of how rich they are again, too, because it's like this is a big house with a rich family, and that table is absurdly large. Like it has to fit, yes. you know, three if not four bodies underneath of it and sit in the middle of this room that has like three giant couches all around it. Like it's, it's, it's a very, yeah, the, I mean, it, it makes plenty of sense to me that this was a, you know, a set constructed for this film. But now like the more and more I think about it, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of clever things they had to do to really emphasize the wealth and like the expanse this family has available to them.
2: Yeah. What's also funny about that moment, because I really like the, the, the blend of these very high stakes, suspenseful situations because the narrative and all the work that they put into it could be undone in a second if they get spotted under the table. So it's yeah. very high stakes, but at the same time um, you see them trapped under the table, unable to move, unable to make any noise, but also g- getting gradually bored, right? Because the son just starts just texting uh, the sister upstairs and just casually just gonna wait, you know, buying out their mm-hmm. time. So I like that juxtaposition of just the movie taking a pause and, um, Sort of smashing together these really horrific images with something absurd. And my favorite one of those images is during the flood when the sister, uh, the Afford, men- Afford mentioned toilet, <laughs> the toilet, she's sitting on it as it's like violently spewing all this raw sewage,
1: mm-hmm. and she
2: just resigns herself to the situation and lights up a cigarette. It's such, <laughs> yeah. a, it's such a memorable image because <sighs> it captures both the like futility and comic absurdity of the whole situation, even though the situation is horrifying.
0: Let's um. <laughs> Let's talk a bit oh, about I... the direction. Speaking of that, um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of like stylish like touches in this film. I mean, there, there's some. I mean, we mentioned like the kind of the, the use of editing and the kind of the exposition and like how we're framing certain sequences. There's, you know, there's thing, there's slow, there's slow motion in here. There's things like them watching that, you know, the the one of the homeless people peeing outside of their home and then they're trying to, like, throw water on the guy, like, there's, and they shoot that all in, like, as this, like, slow motion ballet of sorts, there's
3: a
1: lot
0: of little touches like that.
3: Yeah, I think it's, like, he just was, like, let me just throw the kitchen sink at this, but not in, like, but in, like, a perfectly planned way, because I'm even thinking about, like, when you get that flashback when the mom is talking about, like, her kid who has had, you know, this seizure from the fact that he's claimed that he's seen a ghost, And that shot of the guy's head, Mm. like just slowly coming up from the basement is just brilliant. Um, so there's lots of moments where Bong Joon-ho gets to set you at ease with just like the flow, the free-flowing camera and the shots. And then he's like, slowly, I'm going to throw a shot in here and see if you get it. I'm going to throw this over here because it's going to come back later. And I think the direction of this is really, really good.
0: Not to call too much into another movie, but we saw Lucy in the Sky a few weeks back, and that's a Ooh-hoo. film where... What I like about Noah Hawley on TV, specifically with Legion, is that that's a show where there's a lot going on, but he found a way to kind of teach the viewer how to watch that show, It, which, especially in the first season, it really progresses from seeing someone with a certain state of mind, and as you get further and further into that that season, you understand how things are playing because he's done the work to establish that. And I think that was a big issue for me with Lucy in the Sky, where that movie, for all of its expanding aspect ratios and switches around, it never really seems to find a proper cohesion of how to tell you what you're seeing. It never really felt like the aspect ratio changes, like, informed me what I was supposed to be seeing when it came to Natalie Portman's character. This movie, for Paris, like... It feels like there's so many great touches as to setting you up for things or having you understand a certain way of how everybody's doing stuff or things like The Rock. Just a a lot of establishment and process that gets you right in the right sense. So when there are payoffs, when there are things that challenge the whole framework of the film based off setting up new tension or comedic payoff, like you get it because of how well done this is, how well done the set design is so you understand the geography of every location or how... Interesting how how um detailed the character work has been to get you to a point where you get all that it all it all comes together in such great ways. There are so many great things that happen in the second half of this movie based off what you've learned in the first half of the film. That's it's very admirable
2: because it makes for a very great.
0: entertaining film.
2: It's also very tightly scripted. I think in terms of yes, how details that are <clears throat> prominent, maybe not so prominent in the first half, come back in interesting ways. And so obviously the the most symbolically hefty one is the stone. Mm-hmm. That, uh, is, is gifted to the family as a symbol of wealth and prosperity and good fortune, which of course comes around to become his very literal undoing, um, later on. But also things like we learn that the mom is, I guess, a former athlete of some kind.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And so that kind of comes into play later because she becomes the one who tackles the, the guy during the picnic and kills him with a, with like a kebab sword. Um, and isn't there some, very subtle hint that like the, they're, they're trying it opens with the family trying to steal Wi-Fi from a cafe and the man in the bunker accrued all these debts from loan sharks by trying to run a cafe of some kind. Isn't there some tie in? Mm. I'm sure I, it's... <laughs> it's part of his backstory kind of ties into into the the Kim family in some super subtle way. Or am I did I read too much into that?
0: Not necessarily. It's just been a minute since I can have some of these sure, exact sure. details. I look forward to watching it again <laughs> yeah. so I can pick up on some of these think, things.
2: Yeah, I think these kind of very intricately uh, detailed uh, uh, plot elements will reveal themselves um, in a very rewarding second watch.
0: For sure, and I don't think that, I mean, Bong joon is not the kind of person that has accidents in his films when it comes to these things, so I, I, I wouldn't deny that there's even more layers <laughs> that meets the eye yeah. when you are seeing it for the first time around.
3: Well, I think in, you mentioned sort of how the guy in the basement sort of enamored with the demand of the house and like you see these flickering lights early on in the movie and then you like learn what the reason for them was um, and then it takes on some real poignance uh, at the end and just yeah I, oh, there's just, I just wanted to say that, like this movie is just nothing but pure greatness and not even like specific <laughs> things that made it great it's just everything about it is really really nice.
2: And and I'll say also because you mentioned what's funny about the film, that was a question. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was glad that um to me there wasn't a moment in the film or a character in the film that leans too much into the one objection I've had with Bong Joon-ho's films, which is when not always but every now and then he stretches into what I guess are attempts at comic relief with really weird characters that stick out of the logic of the film to me. So like, I, I was never on board with Tilda Swinton's character in Snowpiercer, and I think maybe the worst offender in this, uh, in this logic is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Okja. Um, like, these are, these are characters that just, I think, are real misfires that um, kind of disrupt my enjoyment of the film, and I didn't get any sense of that with Parasite. I don't know if you, you two would agree, but I don't think that that tone is present at all, and I, and I found that very welcome.
0: I think if i don't i don't disagree with you coming away with that because they are characters that feel like designed to be acquired tastes to a degree i personally don't think they upset the world of the film given kind of the satirical elements that play or whatnot but I, I i can hear what you're saying especially with jake gyllenhaal i think there's a,
2: yeah, he's very garish
0: yes um where swinton and snow like everybody's playing a thing in that movie um Alison Pill has a crazy role in that movie as well.
2: Speaking of uh, Snowpiercer, though, Bong Joon-ho's been saying in interviews that it's a very interesting thing. <clears throat> it's a very useful uh, sort of geog- geographical uh, uh, template to keep in mind, uh, which is that Snowpiercer is very much uh, on its face about class dynamics, but it's represented through the lateral path of the oh. train, whereas this film flips that on its axis and uh, the dynamic mix uh, is vertical. So the house provides us with the schematic understanding that poverty comes in levels um, mm-hmm. because, because we're with the poor family for most of the film. But that's only until we realize that there's yet another level underneath. Right. And so I thought that conceptualization of his that he's been talking about in interviews is very, very neat.
1: Yeah.
0: Again, I think it, it's because there's no real accidents that the kind of choices he makes as a filmmaker, I think he has that kind of understanding, even in the scheme of all of his films, as opposed to just what's going on within a specific film of his. What else can we talk about here? I want to kind of start moving on, but, um, can I ask about
2: the ending? Sure. sure. And I don't, I don't mean whether he, I'm curious what you guys think about whether or not the ending is a fantasy, like whether it actually, and I don't mean, I don't mean whether he actually goes on to buy the house and reunites with his father. I think all, obviously the film's ultimate conclusion is that this type of class mobility is a pipe dream and the film is rather despondent in it's return to the same basement at the end. So what I was wondering about more is whether the whole epilogue is a fantasy. So essentially everything after he gets bludgeoned with the stone to his head
1: uh-huh.
2: is, is all in his head. Um, I don't think that's the official explanation, but I wonder if the film lends itself toward that interpretation.
3: Interesting. I think that he does, you know, go into brain surgery and gets out of this coma and is fine and is having this as a fantasy. The first, when I saw it, when we were watching, Aaron and I saw it, I was like, okay, like this is a vision of the future because this guy is so upwardly mobile. Like re- regardless of sort of like the other family skill at like manipulating the situation, he is the one that has to kick it off and set the groundwork and let everybody know the rules. So I'm like, maybe he really could accomplish this. And become this rich guy and and buy back this house um but then the more i sat with it the more i'm like that's just not in the cards for this family like it's it's ultimately destroyed um but i do think that he is a hundred percent himself at the end versus just being it versus it just being a dream yeah well i mean let me sorry go ahead
2: well, I
0: think in terms of the question you're asking is like if if there's a possibility of that being interpreted that way, where there's a after he gets blood hit with the rock, like everything after that is if if that is that a possible read of it? I mean, sure, because anybody can read anything anyway, because that's how art works, right? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I think the I think the tone of the film and what you're seeing suggests that you need more than just the. The the concept of a person being blacked out and just imagines everything that goes on from there. I think think the film that we've seen so far, which has, you know, mole people essentially coming out of the floors and one has gone crazy and the other is – the wife is trying to kind of suit his needs and there's all – like you need – some kind of resolution to what that storyline is. And so after bludgeoning him in the face, yeah, it would make sense that like from there he would go on to do the things that he does in terms of like Mr. Mr., the sister gets caught in the crossfire, Mr. Park dies and uh, the the wife handles the, Like there's all of those elements add up to me as like things that would make sense at that point in the film.
3: Mm-hmm. Obviously
0: I think as, as Terrence, you mentioned like the fantasy stuff or the stuff going on afterwards, once he gets out of the coma and all that, like, yeah, that's, Buying back the house—it doesn't make any any kind of sense um, as as far as that actually happening. Given just given the, the history that they've already had with that house, like there's no world where he would actually be able to be successful enough to buy the house. Um,
2: but yeah, I mean, I I think so the, I, the the logic I, I of the
0: have, film follows through for me as far as
2: I'm with you both, and I think that's that's probably the correct interpretation. But let me just kind of throw out there why I think this sort of more minority report type alternate uh, interpretation might be valid is because i I caught myself wondering this because if the whole thing is a fantasy let's say post-bludgeoning um it does uh it does do one thing which is that it resolves what i think is a pretty noteworthy plot hole which is why the police haven't found the bunker so we learn that the sister has died the father has vanished and that they've been charged with fraud and so it, it just doesn't really make much sense to me that they wouldn't have been thoroughly interrogated as to the identity of the man in the basement who caused all this havoc right so uh, mind you the family has no idea that the father is in the basement so they would have no real reason to first of all they're not protecting him because they don't know he's there and there's no reason why they would withhold information during interrogation about you know hey this this house is a secret bunker and by the way there's a body down there um, it's just not clear to me why they would decline to reveal that about the house to investigators, especially given their apparent guilt or feelings of, of quasi guilt over having left the original housekeeper down there, presumably for dead. And so it just, yeah, it feels like it might be possible. It, it, it would resolve that plot hole and also like a couple other details as well. Like the, it's the only point, this epilogue, it's the only point in the film that has voiceover. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's comprised of uh, of this uh, letter he's narrating that he's writing out to his father in Morse code, even though there's zero information as to how he's logically going to deliver that message to the father. Right. So it seems like a very one way system. And so all these things, I think, maybe point to a shift in the film that maybe there's something unreal about the whole thing. But
0: anyway,
1: I mean, it speaks to take. the film
0: being, you know, it, it's already, you know, on the line of satire as it is, and there's some heightened qualities where I think there's just a couple leaps you have to accept, or just variables that the film doesn't really, or Bong Joon-ho doesn't really feel need to be explored deeper to make a longer movie just to satisfy certain, you know, little nitpicks you might have about it. Yeah. Anyway, that's my hot yeah. take
3: on the ending. I, I mean, I, I
2: think that's I an... don't break the internet.
3: <laughs> I think that's an interesting reading of it, because um, like I said, like when I first saw it, I was just like, oh, so he went to college he got this money he bought this house and he saved his dad like that was the initial thing that i got and then the more i thought about it it's like, it's like I, th- I think there is enough there to like lend to several interpretations um of the story
0: what kind of oscar potential do you think this film has
3: Woo, um foreign
2: language for sure
0: Foreign language for sure. I mean, it has what a ninety-nine percent or whatever the hell it has around tomato. Yeah, and it's going to be on think, many top ten lists.
3: Yeah, I think Neon is really, really going to be pushing this.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I just think about like we we Roma just last year, but I think what this sort of hues closer to in my mind is a separation and
0: yeah, in terms of the family dynamic and being just more palatable i think for yeah just
3: like i just think like sony pictures i don't even think they knew what they had with the separation like getting it into screenplay was like a really big deal but like neon knows exactly like they've learned from that and from roma it's like you can push these foreign language films to get like a ton of nominations and i have not encountered a single person that doesn't like this movie which always bodes well for you in awards time because you need the passion votes. You need the number one votes to really sort of secure you. But I think, I think director, foreign language, screenplay and picture are in play. Where they're so like ho it,
0: and like supporting. Uh, I know maybe, it's a pretty crowded field. It seems it always is though.
3: Production design. I think that and production design are like the, if they really, really like it, they'll go here mm-hmm. because. You know, all you have to do is tell people that they built that those sets and they built that table, and like, I'm already like, okay, so now it has to be in my production design five. You know, when we vote for LAOFCS (laughs) because it was that spectacular because I didn't know that that was what occurred. But yeah, I
0: can't can't wait for Arc Light to have the table from Parasite people take pictures (laughs) underneath.
3: (laughs) That would be amazing. We should we should tell Neon to do that because that would be great. (laughs) I would absolutely take a photo. Under <laughs> uh, the table.
0: Any other thoughts on this film before we wrap up? And move on.
2: What did you make of the young son's obsession with Native Americans? Should sure, sure, clarify. He's always playing like sort of this, you know, very childish cowboys and Indians type. Cowboys things. and
3: Indians. I think it's really interesting to see how um, other cultures interpret American culture and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it honestly reminded me of uh, My Hero Academia, which is this Japanese anime. But, like, the hero in that is All Might, and all of his moves are, like, names of states. Hmm. So, like, he—and then in one sort of big battle, he's, like, the United States of Smash is the hit that he puts on the guy. So, it just—it really reminded me of that in terms of, like, how—sort of where the cultures intersect. So, that it it sort of made sense that that kid would, you know, do that. He's, like, oh, here's this cool, like, American— thing and it's like you know, he's a weirder child. Um
0: well, even that, I mean it's a mix of, I think, yeah, the kind of cultural crossover, as well as just being a kid and the cowboys and in Indians. I don't know how far that carries across other countries, but it seems to if we're playing it here. And also just Bong being very specific about having and an indigenous culture being fought against by, you know, the kind of outsiders coming in, that kind of thing. Kind of plays Exactly into
2: it. right. So that, that's the interplay that Bong is so masterful at, because on the one hand it's easy to dismiss. Like, well, it's just a kid. It's this you kind know, of very available iconography for a kid who's sort of into fantasy scenarios to, to play upon. And, and because he's not American, the kind of <clears throat> volatile history of Native Americans, um, isn't really going to resonate in Korea. So they can, they can uh, appropriate these images at the same time, disassociating from the kind of historical baggage of it. But at the same time, it's so obviously a history about the marginalization and violence uh, upon uh, native peoples. And insofar as the film is so concerned with haves and have-nots, that would seem really consistent with things, right? So there's something dark and tragic going on, even though at the same time it's kind of goofy and innocuous.
0: Yeah. Well, with that in mind, let's uh, say, when should people go and see this movie? Mike, when should people see Parasite?
2: Well, those who didn't pause the podcast to go watch <laughs> it before returning, um, do it now. Terrence. For a second.
3: The second it is in your city, because the one thing that's been tough about this movie is I've been, like, recommending it to people since we saw it in July. And I'm like, oh, wait, like, this is the first time where I felt very L.A. And I'm like, oh, wait, like, it's going to take, you know, three weeks to get to Washington, D.C., uh, or like four weeks to get to St. Louis. So, if it opens near you, literally the weekend it opens near you, go see it.
2: You're so LA and bourgeois, Terence. You ought to um, check under your floorboards. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I I agree. Go see this movie the second you can. It's fantastic, and uh, everyone should go see it. It's a fun fun romp, that's for sure. And it's got other things going on. Um, all right, I think we've talked plenty about Parasite, quite a bit actually. Let's uh, move on now. Let's get to um, what time is it here? I think it's time for it's time for a game. Alright. That was, of course, the improv theme for games. I have a game for you guys this week. It is called Home Invasion. Yep. Right in line with things. I have a series of films here and I have the tagline for science films. All of these films are home invasion type movies. I'm going to read the tagline. If you think you know the film, just you say your name and then the film. If uh, neither of you get it, since there's only two of you here. I'll try to give some clues to narrow things down. But uh, you guys ready? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's the first one. The tagline is, because you were home.
3: Mike Terrence.
0: I heard Mike. That's The Strangers? That is The Strangers. The first one? Yes, the first one. Yes. The sequel? Not bad.
3: I don't acknowledge a sequel.
0: Have you seen it, though?
3: I have not. It's so
0: cool. It was pretty great. it's got some cool... It's got this pool moment that's one of the best things I've seen in a slasher movie. <laughs> it's got its moments. I know you're a big fan of The Strangers, but the sequel, it could have been way worse, and it's actually pretty pretty solid. Here's the next one. It was supposed to be the safest room in the house. Terrence? Terrence.
1: Panic Room?
0: Panic Room is the correct answer. See, you both were worried. Like, I have a good game for you guys. You guys can solve these questions.
3: I'm, like, staring at my DVDs and <laughs> Blu-rays right now. <laughs> to to see if if it will give me some clues. Here's the next one.
0: Here we go. This house looked like an easy target until they found out what was inside.
2: Mike? Mike? Ooh, you said they, though. Is it the collector?
0: It's not the collector.
3: Can you repeat?
0: This house looked like an easy target until they found out what was inside.
2: Looks like it... Oh, Mike... Is yeah. it? Is it? Am I allowed to go twice? Yeah, there's only it's two. It's like, yeah. a Russian roulette. He, he gets to go. Is it the uh, Don't Breathe? It is Don't Breathe.
3: That's correct. Oh, that was not what I was thinking of at all. So I'm glad that you mm-hmm. went a second time.
0: <laughs>
3: Here's the next one.
0: This one has two taglines. I'm going to read this one because it makes me laugh. The first one is To avoid fainting, keep repeating it's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie.
2: Oh, Mike? <laughs> Mike? And just because we did West Craven recently, that's yeah. uh, uh, Last House on the Left. It is the Last House on the Left, yes.
3: The, other the original is, or the remake?
2: The, the original,
0: yeah. Okay. The, the the There's no other tagline for the original, so I found the remake's tagline, which is, if bad people hurt someone you love, how far would you go to hurt them back?
3: Boo.
0: Boo. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the remake's tagline. Here's the next one. The game is simple. Pick a family, pick a victim.
3: Terrence. Yep. Funny
0: games? It is funny games. Ooh. Similarly, I had to use the English, although he directed both, but I used the English remake because the the French original did not have a tagline I could work with. Here's Austrian. Austrian, sorry. Sorry, Hannigan. Um, <laughs> i losing my cachet with him. Here's the next one. He always takes one.
2: Oh, I just got your cachet reference. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> he always takes one. Mike, is that Mike?
0: the collector? It is. Yeah, that's the collector. Yeah. Here's the next one. The animals will hunt you.
3: What the hell?
0: There's another one. Hunt, sweet hunt. Uh- <laughs> The animals will hunt you is a telling clue if you can think of home invasion movies involving the home invaders.
2: The animals will
3: hunt.
2: Mike, is
3: yeah.
2: it The Purge?
0: It's not The Purge.
2: Is it The Purge 2? It's anarchy.
0: It's, it's not The Purge. It's not The Purge 2. It involves the masks that they wear.
2: Like in the Purge 3? Election year?
0: It's not a Purge movie. Yeah. I will say there's a lot of... It's a it's a horror movie. There is comedy in it. Oh, I think I know. It. Yeah?
2: Is it The... Uh, you're
0: Next? It is You're Next. You're correct. Because they were... <laughs>
3: They were wearing animal funny,
0: masks, funny outfit.
2: Yeah,
3: I haven't seen that movie, so I, nah. would n- I was never getting this one. <laughs> nah.
0: The next one is Survive the Night. If this is the Purge, I'm going to be pretty upset. Someone buzzed, Terrence. Yeah, the Purge. It is the Purge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> I can feel Mike glaring at me. <laughs> uh.
2: God damn it.
3: This is like the Jeopardy situation where you you didn't ask it in the form of a question. You didn't say the (laughs) answer in the form of a question.
0: Here's the next one. A blind woman plays a deadly game of survival. Mike. Mike. Is that Wait Until Dark? Yeah, it's Wait Until Dark. Interesting. I was just watching the Kaminsky method. Sorry, the award-winning Kaminsky method, which has Alan Arkin. I'm thinking, huh, he he was stalking Audrey Hepburn once in that movie.
1: One
3: of, like, Five people who watch that show.
0: I mean, it won the Golden Globe for best comedy. So, it, yeah, I mean,
3: the it, four other people are in the Hollywood Foreign Press.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's Chuck Lorre on Netflix. Come on, like it's it's like Two and a Half Men, except it's just two old men.
3: Sounds dreadful.
0: <laughs> uh, two more. We are our own worst enemy. Mike. Mike. <clears throat> That's us. It is us. The is watch yourself. That was the other tagline for that movie. I like that one. I like seeing that on the poster and it's fancy cursive. Watch yourself. Last one. Every man has a breaking point.
2: Oh, is that Mike? Sorry. Is that Straw Dogs? It is
0: Straw Dogs.
3: Is that really a home invasion title?
0: Yes. It falls under Wikipedia's um, list of home invasion movies. So I'm like, yeah, I'll put that in there. They do come to his home. They do come, They do invade his home. He just fights back.
2: Well, it's just, it's a third act. It's a third it, act thing, it's, yes. It's it's not, it's, the premise is not a home invasion.
0: Yeah, the premise. Yeah. Yeah, it's not Same. like Dustin Hoffman walks in and is like, oh, this is going to be great. And then, oh, no, home invaders. That's the whole movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> Last House on the Left is
2: also kind of a third act thing as well.
0: That said, who's the real home invader? He came into their territory. Mm. Make big think. Um. think. about that. Po- it's a good poster. I'm not a big fan of Straw Dogs, so <laughs> you know whatever.
3: I've only seen the James Marsden, Kate Bosworth, Scarsgard one.
0: It's a movie.
3: It's feature length. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs>
0: yeah. Mike, you are the winner of this week's game. Home invasion. Ooh. Good job. That said, Terrence, you got on the board several times. So everybody, you know, everybody did a good job.
2: Shame on you for not including Knock Knock, because that's like one of my favorite films of the decade. I had like I, 12 films here already. <laughs>
3: like, honestly, like thought night. you were going to have When a Stranger Calls.
0: I, I I left out ones on purpose just to keep you thinking it's going to come up at some point. I do have a method to these games. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's get down now. Feedback, 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 where we go over some of the various questions and answers on our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash on a podcast. I asked a number of questions to the listeners. They gave its answers. And then they gave. Actually, we didn't get any questions this week. Once again, I like getting questions. We haven't got questions in a while. First question we have here. Feel free to lend your answers as well, guys. Favorite film is about con artists. Chris writes Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and The Wolf of Wall Street. Christine has am I, the only, am I the only one that thought confidence was underrated? And I have to give a shout out to The Hard Word because Guy Pierce. Justin has The Talented Mr. Ripley and Gattaca. Nguyen has The Brothers Bloom. Joe has the original Ocean's Eleven with Sinatra. Jason has The Grifters. Uh, Scott has The Sting. Jim has House of, excuse me, House of Games. Eric has Dirty Run Scoundrels, and Todd has The Sting and Dirty Run Scoundrels. Their favorite films about con artists.
2: While you were sleeping. <laughs> Fair. I'm surprised there isn't more David Mamet on that list.
0: I got one House of Games in there.
2: Yeah, just the one. I mean, most of his stuff would fall into this category, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: I, mean, I like the Spanish as which as the next guy. i, I like Wolf of
3: is... Wall Street.
0: Hei- Wolf of Wall Street. Heist is re- I like Heist a lot. That's one that I could easily watch like all the time.
3: Oh, Inside Man. Is it about Who con artists. Are... I don't. don't are they not stealing from people?
0: i okay. Fine. I mean, they're it's a bank. It's not bank a bank robbery. <laughs> a heist.
3: It, what's the difference between the con artist movie and a heist film? You got me. And I guess
0: Clive Owen was like conning Denzel into thinking he was robbing the bank when he wasn't really robbing the bank, because as Denzel says, it ain't no bank robbery. So, I mean, I guess it adds up. (laughs) Um, I'm a big fan of Matchstick Man, by the way, Ridley Scott's Matchstick Mm -hmm. with Nick Cage, Sam Rockwell.
1: Can
2: I recommend a documentary? Yes. Imposter? Uh, Imposter, yeah. Is that 2012 or 13, thereabouts? I think it's 12, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, terrific. Yeah, it is. That's a,
0: that's one where the work, the filmmaking work, because that with the director did American Animals after that, which I also like quite a bit. Um, I like the I like impo- is it Imposter or The Imposter?
2: I think it's The Imposter.
0: I think it's the yeah I think it's The Imposter, and I I like that film so much because of how cinematic it was already, it's similar to like Man on Wire. Um, where it's like, why do I need a feature version of this when I already have a documentary that, like, captures everything about this so incredibly well? <laughs> like, what's... I don't need Robert Zemeckis to come in and be like, here, I'm going to do my take now. Like,
2: yeah. what? okay, whatever. No, it's like, it's, the suspense is built in. It's very... Exactly, yeah. It's got, like, really charismatic characters, so to speak, mm-hmm. in the real yeah. they're interviewing. Yeah, it's, it's just terrific. Yeah.
0: Next question we have here. Favorite films about scavengers living on the fringes? Jim Dietz, friend of the show, has Repo Man, any Mad Max movie, and WALL-E. Justin has Star Wars The Force Awakens, and Richard has Explorers, films about scavengers.
1: Hmm. Quest
2: for Fire, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going off script every time.
3: (laughs) I don't think I have a favorite film about scavengers.
0: It's alright, I can keep moving. Favorite film (laughs) about the rich? You wrote Terrence uh, the Leopard. Yes. Justin has, it's not my favorite film, but... Book that became a film twice: *The Great Gatsby*. Nguyen has *Vanity Fair*, *Marie Antoinette*, *Wolf of Wall Street*, and *Crazy Rich Asians*. Scott has *My Man Godfrey*, and Chris writes *The Aviator*. Favorite film about the rich? Which one's *The Leopard*?
3: *The Visconti*. Louis Visconti*. (laughs) Is
2: that Burt Lancaster? Yes. Okay.
1: Okay. And Elaine.
3: And Elaine Delon, I think. Yeah, I saw it in New York a couple years ago, and I was like. A three-hour movie. Like, let me just watch this while I'm on vacation. Uh, And it was phenomenal. Oh,
2: I'm going to throw you one. You ready? Here it comes. Citizen Kane. Heard of (laughs) him. And one half of Titanic.
0: (laughs) There's a half of that movie.
3: (laughs) All of Titanic. Don't just, you know, throw out the first half of that movie.
0: (laughs) How about Trading Places?
3: Sure.
1: Okay, fine. And <laughs> sure.
0: Eddie Murphy on the mind because Dolomite's out. Um, what's the most beautifully ugly film you've ever seen? Chris writes: Death scene in Antichrist, horrible to watch but brilliantly shot.
3: By beautifully, beautifully ugly. What do you mean by beautifully ugly? It's like big um,
0: like... matter. Well, I think of like the scene that we we're talking about in Parasite where they're having like a piss fight battle with slow motion water and stuff, but it's still like a wonderfully shot sequence. What what are like films where there's like horrific things taking place but it's still like it has its own kind of majestic quality to it?
3: Uh mother. hos uh, mother? Or uh, no Aronofsky's, Aronofsky's mother. Aronofsky's mother. You say yeah. it correctly,
0: Terrence. Mother.
3: Mother exclamation <laughs> <laughs> mark. <Mother! laughs> Yeah, that entire movie is like beautifully shot, but very disturbing. So,
2: my shouting? Nothing comes to mind. I mean, there's so many. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Pasolini's solo, but that's probably the most stark contrast you can get between really depraved, disgusting subject matter versus the kind of trappings of very high art cinema, maybe. Sure.
0: Uh, what are some great films about keeping secrets? Scott has Ronan. Patrick has Sneakers. Justin has Reservoir Dogs and The Departed. Mm-hmm. Keeping secrets. Secrets and
2: Lies? What are they? <laughs> <laughs> Secret Life of Pets too. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta admit, I haven't seen it, so I don't know how...
0: Uh, I, I don't want to spoil what the, secrets, the secrets are. are. They yep.
2: are a doozy, let me tell oh, you. Oh, gosh. It's a plenty... Secret Life of Bees. That's the
0: yeah, other thanks. spelling one, right? There was there Aquila was and the bee, and then The Secret Life of Bees.
2: <laughs> I didn't see it. It's about spelling bees?
3: No. The Secret Life of Bees is not about spelling bees. <laughs> I,
2: know, I just wanted to see how far that would go.
0: <laughs> Any other one coming to mind? I can move on. What are some films that kept you guessing until the end? Justin writes, The Game. It was I kept you guessing all the way. There. I guess Mother is a pretty good example of that. I don't know where that movie was going.
3: Yeah, I sure as hell didn't know where it was going when I went, and I went in as cold as I did for Parasite with that one. Well, even uh-huh. that, like
0: the trailer doesn't give you. The trailer sets me up for a certain kind of movie, and I got Ooh. tonally what they were doing. But it's like yeah, I don't know where this was going by the time I was watching it.
3: Yeah, I mean, a separation. Did yeah. Most of our Hardy uh-huh.
0: movies do that for me. As far as that yeah, goes.
3: like you. You get to about 15, 10, 15 minutes left in that movie, and then he just slaps you with something. Mm-hmm. That is just emotionally devastating. <laughs> so, um, Having not read the book, Gone Girl did
0: keep throwing me through loops because it added new like layers to it every time around. I was like, okay.
3: I, I
2: late 90s, early 20s being a, a, a good time for... Movies that kept me guessing and, and ended up being really unpredictable, which in hindsight are maybe a little bit cliche now. So remember like Fight Club, <clears throat> again, not having read the, the, the book in advance, but uh-huh. that kept me guessing. But of course, yeah, he was all in his head the whole time. Feels a little bit contrived now. Uh, another one around the same time was Memento, which I haven't rewatched in a really long time. So I'm curious if it holds up. But I remember being
1: we
0: watched it last way- year for one of our commentaries. And yeah, I mean, I memento works for me all the time on all levels yeah. like it
1: just
0: <laughs> i mean but, i mean some of it because i think mean, we're we're kind of talking on the side of movies that have like twists in them or some of these do some of these don't but i mean something like fight club or Sixth Sense. what works about those movies for me is that the, the movies work in spite of the kind of other shoe dropping in those films
1: like mm-hmm. fight,
0: fight club there's plenty of things going on as far as what it's commentating on and the performances and just fincher's style where it's like okay and then this is a thing that's going it's like well for one thing yeah, of course, that that's the only like, logical place to go at that point in that film, but also it doesn't negate like everything else that's coming after it. Sixth Sense is just like, this is just a really dramatic story involving this kid and his mother and the psychiatrist that's involved in it. It's like, oh, that's a thing too? Okay, that's pretty clever. Also, it doesn't take away from the rest of the movie. Others, other twists that are kind of just thrown in there, it's like, yeah, alright, like, you just kind of shrug it off, and you're like, well, I guess that's the end of that movie. Like There's nothing to really, there's no meat on the bone of that thing.
3: Yeah, I'd say Burning... From last year, oh, as far as keeping guessing. guessing, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that
0: plays that plays well into Parasite as well in terms of kind of the dynamics between the rich and the poor for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Mike, well, do I you see burning?
2: Double- I did. I liked it.
3: I'm I feel like I'm singing the God. I will continue to sing the gospel of burning <laughs> for years <laughs> to come.
0: Had <laughs> hey, better dancing than Parasite. Say that. There was no dancing in Parasite. Yeah. That's... All right. <laughs> that was not enough feedback. Feedback, feedback. Let's move on. Now let's start wrapping things up with uh, Out in Presents. What's out now? There's some movies that are coming out on Blu-ray, 4K, DVD, streaming, and all that noise. Um, this week, surprisingly no like real new releases as far as like mainstream things. But um, let's see. Batman Beyond, the complete series, is on Blu-ray this week for Batman Beyond fans. On Criterion... You know I'm happy. The Godzilla Complete Showa Era Collection, 15 films, the uh, earliest period of Godzilla films from the 54 original up to uh, The Terror of Mechagodzilla in 75. All of those out in this very fancy Criterion set. I cannot wait to have my hands on it. Also, uh, Matawan is on Criterion. Uh, this week. Is at the John Sayles movie on the my second. Um, let's see, what else? An American Werewolf in London has an all-new Arrow uh, Blu-ray release this week that looks pretty fantastic. Uh, the Ringu films are all in a new collection from Arrow as well. Uh, Chuck Russell's The Blob from 1988. That gets a new Scream Factory release this week. That's a movie that a lot, that doesn't for some reason doesn't get the same regard as like The Fly and The Thing as far as 80s remakes go, but that movie is very effective for remaking
2: The Blob, the original with oh, yeah. Queen And if you're talking and, about... Good use of practical effects in horror, right? That one's For special. sure. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's got some gnarly stuff in there. And uh, what's his name? Kevin Dillon. His, his claim to fame, The Blob.
2: Yep. <laughs> Old Cousin Kevin. mm mm-hmm. uh,
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
2: you.
1: Uh,
0: let's see. Jackie Chan's Mr. Nice Guy is out on Blu-ray this week from Warner Archive for those who wanted to complete the Jackie Chan collections.
2: That Uh, Mr. Nice Guy has one of the best one-on-one fight sequences in any Jackie Chan movie against this, I don't know if he's American, but this white guy named Brad Allen. I don't know if you know the scene I'm talking about, where he's the the, the villain is all in black, Jackie's all in white, and they just go toe-to-toe, and it's just a really great fight scene for those who uh, follow these things.
0: I don't quite remember. Here's here's my story of Mr. Nice Guy. That movie came out, was out around the same time as uh, *Goodwill Hunting* was like spreading wider and wider into theaters. My mom. And her boyfriend at the time, they chose to see Goodwill Hunting, and I'm like, I'm gonna go see Jackie Chan and Mr. Nice Guy, <laughs> and that's when I saw that movie in the theaters by myself. And that movie ended because it was only 90 minutes, so I saw like the end of Goodwill Hunting. I was like, Oh, this looks like a pretty good movie. So eventually, I saw Mr. or Goodwill Hunting, and it's like, Oh, that was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I missed out. That said, I like I liked Mr. Nice Guy at the time. I just have very little memory of it. I remember it has a he's a cook in that movie, if I'm not mistaken. Like he's a chef.
2: Oh, Jackie I I don't, I don't remember what it's about.
0: I think he's a chef in that movie, and there's a giant fight on like a tr- like a big tractor, like it has like a giant wheel like tractor. I remember those are the things about that movie I can remember. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, on Kino, you have a couple of Martin Scorsese films, Kundun and uh, New York Stories. Part of his as a it's him Woody Allen. Is it Coppola? Is the third one in that one? Who's the other one in uh, New York Stories?
3: Ah, oh, the directors of uh, real cinema. <laughs>
0: <laughs> who's the other who's the third one am i way off Oh, i don't remember oh come on <laughs> give me a second <laughs> it is coppola i'm right okay it's Woody Allen, work friends coppola martin Scorsese. Uh, but yeah there's those are on keynote this week uh on 4k you have wizard of oz 4k uh it's a wonderful life 4k and red heat 4k three classics
2: <clears throat> any of them in 24k
3: 24k restoration <laughs> shut up <laughs> i can't wait for you to go back and listen to this and I, realize I can't as well 24K.
0: <laughs> 24k restoration all right <sighs> on streaming this week on netflix we have dolomite is my name this is the Eddie murphy film from craig brewer uh I, has anyone else seen dolomite yet
1: not, not yet, yet.
0: I've watched it. I saw I mentioned last week I saw it with my dad in theaters. I It's really fun. It's very enjoyable and I'm very happy to see Eddie Murphy in a very good movie that uses his talents quite well. Quick,
2: um, some quick question does it require a rewatch of the original dolomite which i'm more than happy to do but i'm wondering whether or not uh... it
0: does i would say <laughs> if anything it's better supplemented by afterwards because you can see what he what they do in that movie because there's like it's the Dole, the making the dolomite film segment of dolomite is my name is like that's just like a chunk of the movie but they you'll see the kind of devotion they have to to making it feel exactly like the uh, the movie, the actual Dolomite film, which yeah. is streaming on Prime right now. Uh, let's see, Rattlesnake is on Netflix this week, which looked like a neat little thriller that I might want to check out. Um, Daybreak, I guess, is a zombie show involving a high school. Sure. Let's see, David Letterman has a new one of his specials this week. He's talking with Shah Rukh Khan. Uh, let's see, The Kaminsky Method Season, the aforementioned Kaminsky Method Season 2 is on, on Netflix now. Uh, Bojack Horseman Season 6 Part 1 Is on uh, Netflix this week The final season uh, Of Bojack Horseman The first part of it And lastly Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, Is on Netflix as well I mentioned that because hey That's our next commentary track So if you feel like refreshing yourself on Texas Chainsaw Massacre Or watching it while listening to our commentary You can find it on Netflix It's very easy So yeah uh, Next week's show Next week It's it's time There ain't no fate for what we make it Terminator Dark Fate Is uh, the next one we'll be talking about on the show um, last thing we do here What should people go and see now And what do you plan to see next Mike, what should people see in theaters right now
2: I'm drawing a blank as to what's out But I'm, uh, if again, if people have access to these films <clears throat> Pain and Glory, of course um, Parasite uh, What else is out I liked Jojo Rabbit Although I didn't love it So, But that's enough for, uh, to recommend, I think It's a fun one
1: And we'll
2: oh. I'm I'm, well, I'm seeing The Irishman In theaters um, which I am equal parts looking forward to and dreading. Uh, at three and a half hours, though, I'm glad to be seeing it in a theater because, you know, you, you kind of want to let yourself be held captive to it. I think that would be deadly watching it at home on the TV. Um, mm. and I, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it depends on your viewing habits. I understand what you're yeah. saying. I yeah. Yeah. No, in, in my case, I'm looking forward to the big screen. Um, sure. and I'm seeing Terminator Dark Fate, but I bought my tickets to see it in 4DX. So I'm hoping to get sloshed around and sprayed uh, because I wanted to see how bad it's going to be in the best way possible.
1: So, <laughs> so I, I'm kind of looking. I mean,
0: it. I I can't talk about it right now, but I mean, yeah, sloshed around and sprayed. That sounds like a certainly a proposition Ooh, <laughs> to be involved it. in. Uh, Terrence, what should people see in theaters right now?
3: Other than Parasite for the third time. Um what should people see in theaters? I feel like I haven't noticed (laughs) what's been in theaters for so long. Um, I think I will end up seeing Terminator this weekend. Um, just because my intrigue at how bad it could potentially be, but with Schwarzenegger and Hamilton Mm -hmm. involved like that, I I can come back to this movie for them. Uh, Frankie is also um, in theaters with Isabel Huppert, Marissa Tomei, Ira Sachs movie. Um, which I think Arisach,
0: yeah, I wanted to see that, the Ira Sachs film. I like his other.
3: It's, it's really interesting. So yeah, those would be the ones I would recommend.
2: Hey, quick right. question. Uh, have, yeah. I, have you seen Rob Zombie's new film yet, Three from Hell?
3: Absolutely, I
0: have not, not, but I am a big fan of the Devil's Rejects. That said, I've heard terrible, terrible things about this movie. So, I mean, I I, from from people that like the Devil's Rejects. So, I it's not you know among the things on my to do list. Doesn't rank very high right now.
2: I thought that might make for my Halloween movie this year, but haven't gotten around to it.
3: There are other useful ways for me to waste my time (laughs) than seeing a Rob Zombie. It's also
0: like a little over two hours. I'm like, how how much story you got to tell (laughs) this movie? anyway uh, yeah Parasite if you can find it for sure Jojo Rabbit I know is spreading wider and I really like it so I'd recommend it and The Lighthouse is out there as well and uh, I'm surprised that it's actually doing pretty decently at the box office given the kind of movie it is but hey sure why not
3: yeah it's really weird
0: Yeah, Uh, Knives Out is the next movie I'm seeing and I'm quite looking forward to that and uh, yeah I'm also seeing Doctor Sleep this week so lots of fun stuff coming my way yeah uh, but with all that said, that's going to do it for this week's episode about Now with Aaron and Abe. You can find more of my work, my personal blog, the Everything I do ends up over there. I'm also writing at whysoblue.com for Criterion and Blu-ray reviews. And I'm also writing at We Live Entertainment, where I am covering week- weekly movie reviews, as well as Watchmen and Walking Dead on a weekly basis. And find me on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Terrence Johnson, where can we find more of you online?
3: You can find me at littlewatchwood.net. That's L-E-N-O-I-R-A-U-T-E-U-R dot net. Um, I'm also on Rotten Tomatoes, where you'll see my reviews from our website. And you can find me on the social medias at Terrence D. Johnson. That's Terrence with one R and an E. Um, no more Lenoir tour on the socials.
0: I noticed that. And I was like, what happened to Terrence? Okay.
3: <laughs> yes, it, a mini a mini rebrand.
0: <laughs> Mike, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, nope. All right. Well, thank you and Terrence both for joining me this evening. Yes, yeah, thanks for having me. Happy Halloween. For sure, and of course, you can find all the other episodes of Out Now name on iTunes, Audible, Boom, Spotify, Stitcher. Email us at outnowpodcast@gmail.com, Facebook.com/outnowpodcast, Facebook.com/outnowpodcast, Twitter.com/outnowpodcast, and instagramcom podcast as well. Uh, yeah, all our stuff's everywhere. Uh, tune in next week for Terminator. Have a happy and safe Halloween, of course. And until next time, so long and goodbye. <laughs>
1: 힘껏 마시는 미세먼지 눈은 오지 않고 비도 오지 않네 바싹 메마른 내 발바닥 매일 하얗게 불태우네 없는 근육이 다 타도록 쓸고 밀고 닦고 다시 움켜지네 Y en tac tac han de
2: Mike, you good? I'm good. You doing anything for Halloween? No, it kind of crept up on me this year, <clears throat> and I don't I haven't made any plans. I'm sure I'll get invited to something or other, but I don't have a costume. so'll
0: well, just uh, wear your clothes backwards and be uh,
2: be backwards, Mike. Backwards, Mike.
0: Yeah. That's just right off the top of my head. I could, I could come
2: up with 20 suggestions for you. Right now. <laughs> I could just walk around saying really sexist, racist things like, "Oh my God, the guy's so backward. I didn't say regressionist, Mike. Although, that's a
0: a good one, too. Potato, potato. One feature, and a a whole new...
3: A 24K? I didn't know they made things that high.
0: I didn't say 24K. Is it...
3: I said, a new four,
0: I said a new 4K restoration.
3: I heard 24K as well. I definitely said 24K. will listen
0: back to the tape and we'll see how it sounds, okay? <laughs> there was a new remastered version
2: of this film that features a 24K restoration as 24K restoration. 24K
1: restoration. 24K restoration. 24K restoration. 24K restoration, 24K restoration
3: and I was definitely like, wow, you must have, like, some really fancy I'm just speaking fast,
0: here. but there was a new 4K restoration along with a new score. <laughs>